invite you to open your Bible with me tonight to Paul's letter to the Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 1. The focus of our message tonight will be verse 21, but I'd like to read some of the context so that we really um, get a better sense of what Paul's speaking of. So I'm going to begin at verse 12, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Just remind you that Paul is in prison in Rome. He's been there for two years approximately at this point, And um, he's writing to these dear brothers and sisters in Philippi. Let's give our attention to God's word. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is, is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that, you, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, we come now before this uh, word inspired by the Spirit of God, and we ask the Lord for you to give us ears to hear it and to delight in it, to see um, the wonderful Savior that Paul saw and knew and proclaimed. May we see him with the eyes of faith tonight and cherish him. To the comfort of our hearts, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we gather uh, together tonight celebrating um, our Lord Jesus Christ, we're also uh, thanking God for the good gift that he's given to us in our brother in Christ, David Shep. But we're opening our Bible tonight because the most important thing for us tonight is 
Um, not to uh, come to a greater understanding or deeper appreciation of, of David. Uh, David would be the first to say, don't you dare do that. But we need a fresh view of David's Lord. Uh, that's why we're here, to get a fresh vision of David's Lord. A few days before he died, David uh, asked uh, his daughter Jillian to read scripture for him. And he specifically asked her to read Paul's letter to the Philippians. Uh, he didn't say specifically why, just asked her to read, and, and so she did. Uh, our text tonight was clearly on our brother's mind and heart as he began his journey in the valley of the shadow of death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And our goal tonight is to unpack those beautiful, beautiful words so that we feel their power and that we see the magnificent glory of our Savior in them. I love uh, to preach in times like this. Uh, I think preaching in a time of the loss of a loved one, uh, particularly one who's died in Christ, is such a, a, a wonderful, clarifying experience for us. The, the, the pain is real, and the, and the parting is hard, and we, we grieve with our brothers and sisters, but the gospel shines through with such brilliance. Uh, this is what Christ came to rescue us from. He came to rescue us from death. He did not come to give us uh, a more palatable life. He didn't come to, to try to clean us up a little bit, make us better people. Um, Jesus Christ came because we were in bondage to death, under the just judgment of a holy God. And the grave awaits every single one of us. And without Jesus, without Christ, that moment of death would be yours and mine, our entrance into eternal condemnation, eternal judgment, just judgment, everlasting loss. Where Jesus, when he tells a story about that experience, the torments of hell, if you remember, uh, the, the, the rich man is, is in the torment of hell, and the one thing he asks for is that Lazarus at the side of Abraham would be able to dip his finger in some water and take that damp finger to put it on his tongue. And Jesus isn't just trying to scare people. This is why Jesus came, but he has come, and he has conquered, and that makes all the difference. And a, a time of death can also be clarifying just because it, asks, it, it, it requires us to ask good questions about our own life. We are busy people, and we have busy schedules and busy families, and, and, and we're busy about our careers and, and our hobbies and interests, but there's something about a death that gives an opportunity to pause and think about the life that we are actually living, the life that you are living and I am living. We only get one, you understand. And the question is, is the life that you are actually living the life that you will wish you had lived when you come to death's door? in all your busyness, in all the things that need to be done, is the life that you are actually living, the life that you will wish you had lived when you come to your deathbed. You see, death has a way of catching our attention and critiquing our ambitions. What actually are you living for? 
if people look at your checkbook, if people look at your schedule, if, if we could peer into the things you dream about, what is your heart hungry for? What is it thirst for? The American dream? The Hollywood romance? The Wall Street achievements? Maybe you're living for lesser dreams, just smaller pleasures, more easily attainable treasures like just a normal West Michigan life. Well, Paul wants you to know that for him to live was Christ. To him, for him to live was Christ. And we know that a phrase like that, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, um, it could easily become a cliche, a nice platitude, something to maybe dress up artistically and put up on the wall. It's short, it's punchy, it's memorable. But friends, Paul did not write these words and the Spirit didn't inspire these words so that we could just have a vague sentimental truism that we notice but don't pay attention to. These, these words are meant uh, to be the banner under which we live. This is, these words are meant to be the defining truth of your life and, and my life. Paul's not just someone to, to look to and say, wow, what a, what a great guy. But he, but he means this to be our life, the Christian life. And that's why I love reading Paul, because he's, he is a marvelous example of, of what Christianity looks like when it's actually lived. When, when people live out the things that they say they believe. And when you look at the Apostle Paul, you just have to love how his, his, his heart, his passion, his perspective is all saturated with Jesus. That's what it should look like. And, and our heart passion should be just that, just what Paul says, to live as Christ. See, if we see, if we really know the same Jesus Paul knew, because the Jesus that Paul knew was spellbinding. The Jesus Paul knew was captivating. He was awesome and terrifying in his holiness. He was, he was magnificent in his power. He was so tender in his love. So good in his faithfulness. The Paul that Jesus knew demanded his soul, his life, and his all. Jesus was not on sort of the peripheral, in his peripheral vision. His view of Jesus filled the horizon of his life. Jesus did not have part of his affection. His, his love for Christ reigned over every other love. And the reason that's the case is because Paul was convinced that Jesus loved him. It was love, not theology, that filled Paul's life with Jesus. It was love. Galatians 2.20, the life, Paul says, this is his testimony, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the life he lived in the flesh. I want that to be true of my life. I, I'm sure that you want that to be true for your life. Isn't that what we want to, to live by? Faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us, the Jesus who's coming back again for us. And so this is Paul's confession. To live is Christ. What does it actually mean? Maybe you've heard a football player being interviewed and um, 
testifying that football is his life. And we get a sense what he means by that. It means that he thinks about football all the time. He lives to play the game. He, his whole life is directed toward that end. So he watches carefully what he eats. He exercises regularly. He punishes his body. He submits to coaching. He watches hours and hours of film. He dedicates his time and his energy, his thoughts, his abilities to the game of football. And he loves doing it. It's not a chore. It's his life. Now that's how Paul felt about Jesus. Jesus had that kind of effect on Paul's life. Christ was always on his mind. He studied Jesus, his person and his work, his mission in the world. He talked about Jesus all the time. Him we proclaim, Colossians 1.28. I decided to know nothing when I was among you but Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2.2. This was, this was his passion, to, to know Jesus. In chapter 3 of this letter, he says, I count everything as loss surpassed, uh, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. A few verses later, 3 verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. He wanted to know Jesus so badly, so intimately, that he knew Jesus not just in his glory, but that he knew Jesus in the, in the magnificence of the suffering of Jesus. Paul says, I want to know him there. I want to know him like that. And so he gave his his. His whole life to this. He beat his body to make it a slave to the cause of Christ. And his body was a canvas then on which Jesus was painted, was painting a gospel picture. He was, he was beaten, Paul was, and stoned and imprisoned. And he says, these are the marks of Jesus. Because Christ, you see, was, was the defining reality of his life. He lived and dreamt and breathed and worked about Jesus. And this letter to the Philippians is a, is a magnificent testimony to that. There are uh, just over, in single digits, just over 100 verses in uh, Paul's letter here to the Philippians. Paul mentions Christ or Lord 52 times in 45 of those verses. That's nearly every other verse. Paul is making mention of Jesus Christ or Lord. Every other verse. In the first chapter, there's 30 verses, if you note, in the first chapter. There are 18 references. Two-thirds of the verses, nearly, are about Jesus. Everywhere you look, he's, he, it's, just, it's just coming out of him. He's always pointing to Jesus, referencing Jesus, magnifying Jesus. It's always about Jesus. And maybe that's why our brother David wanted to hear this letter in his last days. Because it's about Jesus. And you see, this radical Christ focus is what gave Paul the ability to live in, in joy, even in, in really difficult, hard circumstances. Remember, he's not writing from some idyllic Mediterranean uh, seaside resort, penning a letter to these struggling churches. He's in Rome, in prison, and he's been there for two years. But he is not complaining, he's rejoicing. He's committed to rejoicing. And he, and he, he delights, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, being in prison, has 
served to advance the gospel. What Paul found in, in those two years is that he had a captive audience. These guards had to come and were literally chained to Paul. And guess who got to di dictate the conversation? The Apostle Paul. And guess what he talked about? Jesus, 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 Jesus all day long. It's magnificent. Paul says, you know, here I am in Rome, and I've got all these guys, and they can't get away from me. And he's preaching Christ. I, I want you to know, he says, that, that the whole palace guard, the whole imperial guard, and all the rest, they know my imprisonment is about Jesus. They know what the deal is. They know what's going on. And then he says, there's some who are been also emboldened in their witness because they realize how much, uh, how much ministry I got going on here. And they're saying, well, that's the worst that happens. Let's, let's just preach Christ out here in the streets all the more boldly. And Paul says, I delight in that. And then there's some people who are doing this out of envy. They're, they're trying to, in some way, undermine Paul, trying to cause trouble maybe for him in some way. And, and, and Paul says, well, I don't know. You know, their motives might not be good, but... We, what I love is that whether it's from good motives or bad motives, Christ is being proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. He's committed to it. You see, the, he, he lives his life without regard to himself. He lives his life for Jesus. If the circumstances make Jesus look good, praise the Lord, even if they're difficult circumstances, if the, if, the, uh, if the circumstances advance the cause of the gospel, praise God. If the circumstances give glory to God, then he will delight in them. Remember when he has the thorn in his flesh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and he begs God, please take it away, whatever it might have been. And three times God says, no, my grace is sufficient. Because I, I use weakness to magnify my power, the glory of my might. And so Paul says, therefore, I will delight all the more in my weakness so that the power of God may rest in me. You see, it's, just, it's always about Jesus. What a radical way to live. Think of how that would alter your life. Is you is, is if we had this, this radical Christ-centered vision so that we look at circumstances not according to how does it affect my well-being or my preferences, but how do my circumstances magnify God? What is God doing here? That's how Paul lives. For me to live as Christ. And friends, I can tell you that was David's concern as well. David wanted to see gospel. He wanted people to see gospel realities in the canvas of his life. He loved to help people. Many years he served as a deacon. He loved particularly to help those who were easily passed by. He loved his work at Mel Trotter Ministry. He loved uh, to teach children. Many of you here uh, experienced David Chupp as a teacher. Janessa, uh, David's oldest daughter, wrote this about her dad. She says, some of you remember well the way my dad told Bible stories. Often he told them with a canvas in front of him, and as he spoke, he drew with chalk on the canvas. He loved the way that the beauty, complexity, and mystery of creation displayed the character of God. And he often illustrated biblical principles by drawing an animal or something else in nature. The drawing continued until the story seemed over, but when the lights were turned down and a black light shone over the canvas, a new picture emerged that had been there the whole time, only hidden. The second picture showed something of redemption, a cross or an empty tomb. That's how my dad taught me to see the whole world. 
Look behind what you can see. Look through it to the greater beauty you hadn't noticed before. My dad seemed most interested in the people whose lives on the outside looked least like hopeful pictures because that is where he found the grace of the Lord most wonderful. That's a great testimony. To delight in the picture, you see that Jesus is painting. The, the, the things that highlight the, the story of redemption, the wonder of God, the power of the cross. And we find those things revealed not in the, in the, um, the noteworthy things. We don't find those, those truths revealed in the noble things, the, the things that people tend to, to just naturally praise. We find those truths revealed in the weak things and the despised things that people left behind. Paul rejoices um, has an infectious joy in his life because he's got his, his heart and mind set on Jesus. And, and if you knew David, you knew that that shines through, shown through David too. There was a twinkle in his eye, an infectious joy. There's a smile on his face. And even in the pain of chronic, uh, even in the presence of chronic pain and inability, and David spent the last 15 years of his life in that, if you would talk to David, you'd want to talk about the Lord. To live is Christ. My question, friend, is will we be able to say that about you at your funeral? Will your family be able to say whatever else is true about dad or about mom or about my brother, my sister, my husband, my wife, we would want you to know this, that for them to live was Christ. I pray that it would be what they could say because then we can confess gladly that to die is gain. There's an interesting theological lesson here in the grammar of this text. Uh, when, when Paul says to live is Christ, you could say living is Christ. It's present tense, ongoing activity. Uh, living was Jesus for Paul all day for as many days as God determined to give him. To die is gain, aorist tense, one-time event. A death is not an ongoing reality, an ongoing state. It's a moment, an open door to pass through into the presence of Christ. And that's what Paul most deeply desired. Verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better and the word that Paul uses here for desire, it's an intense longing. It's the same word that's translated as lust or craving. Epithumia. My heart desire, my heart hunger, what I must have, what I most long for is to depart and be with Christ because it will be far better. What does he mean by better? I think Paul gives us an insight what he means in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11 and 12. 1 Corinthians 13, 11 and 12, he has this wonderful depiction about what, what love is like. And then he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 
Some of the most beautiful words in Scripture where Paul contrasts this life and then, that life. This life we see as in a mirror dimly, and mirrors in those days weren't the high-tech things that you see on cars nowadays. Uh, they're just polished pieces of metal give a very blurry, blurry image. It's, it's like looking through one of those, uh, those glass blocks that you maybe see, see in a basement window or something. You, you, can, you can light kind of makes its way through, and, and maybe you can either, even make out some sort of a shape or shadow, but, but that's really all you can see. And Paul says that's what this life is like. That's what our knowledge of Jesus, that's what our knowledge of eternity uh, and heavenly things is like. The, the Bible is very clear in explaining to us um, who, who God is and how to, what we need to know about him in order to be saved. The way of salvation is perfectly clear. A little child can see and understand and believe. But the Bible doesn't tell us much about the glories to come, about the new heaven and the new earth and, and, and what Jesus is, is, is like in that sense. If you have your Bible, maybe go to Revelation chapter 1, where you find that when the Bible talks about Jesus or talks about the new heaven and the new earth, it uses metaphors and similes, analogies. You'll, you'll see the word like. It's, it's like this. To, to try to give us, you see, uh, some sense and so in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. There's a symbol. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. They're just, John is grasping for metaphors and, and analogies, a, a word picture to, to try to help us somehow see what he sees. But it's, it's, a, it's a glass dimly. That's all we have on this side of eternity. We see the glories through a blurry window. And so, and so we walk in this life by faith, not, not by sight. But, Paul says, one day, then, you see, our knowledge of Christ won't be uh, from a biblical text. It, it won't be from uh, the Spirit's witness in our own heart. One day, it will simply be face to face. That's what... Paul promises what the Word of God promises. 1 John 3, 2. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. No more dimly, no more blur. As he is, we will see him. Perfect clarity. And, and Paul says when that happens, then you will know, you will really know who he is and what he's like. No more images, no more similes or symbols. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, fully, even as I have been fully known. I will see him, Jesus. Paul says that, that's going to be better by far. I've heard people say that heaven wasn't attractive to them because it sounded like being in church forever. <clears throat> uh, now, I enjoy church as much as anyone, I think, but I have to say that I agree that if, if heaven is just church forever, 
That's a lot of church. <laughs> Friends, heaven will not be church forever. Heaven will be Jesus forever. Jesus forever. And Jesus is more beautiful than anything you've ever seen. He's more satisfying than any experience you've ever had. He's more overwhelming, more captivating, more delightful, more glorious than all the delight, all the glories of this world times 10,000. Nothing compares to Jesus. And so the hymn writer says, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hands. Because the king, the lamb, is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Face to face. You see, that's the gain. That's, that's the gain Paul has in mind. The gain of death is not simply the receipt of heaven. The gain is not the end of sorrow and pain and crying, as wonderful as that, that will be. The gain will not be whatever rewards we receive. They won't be the mansions that we think we might inhabit. The gain will not be the reunion of loved ones and family members. The gain will not be the joy of seeing Abraham, how cool it will be to sit down with King David. The gain of heaven is Jesus. It's Jesus. I hope that's good news to you. And that's why we celebrate David's victory, because that's what David knows. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 32, says that when God's children die, the souls of the righteous immediately return to God and are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and in glory. The face of God. Janessa ended her testimony saying, the final picture of my father's life has been completed, but my dad so clearly now sees the magnificence of redemption that he was confident was present the whole time. Is that your confidence? Is that your heart's desire? Is that your hunger? I want to see Jesus. What's the basis for that confidence, friends? I'll wrap with this. The basis is simply the power and the promise of God sealed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter talks of it, 1 Peter chapter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope, confidence, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Friends, the inheritance is Jesus. And you then being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And friends, that's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus gets all the glory in our salvation and we get the joy inexpressible and full of glory. If we know him. Do you? Do you know him? Are you finding the Spirit at work in your life so that more and more you have a hunger to know Christ? That, that more and more you, you want to be able to say, for me to live is Jesus. And, and more an increasing confidence that, that, that to die is gain. It's better by far. Because I shall see him 
face to face. If you don't know that to be your story, if you don't know that to be true for you, would you, would you, I beg you, get on your knees tonight and talk to God, talk to Jesus, ask him to make these things real for you, that you would know Jesus this way, that the Holy Spirit would just open your blind eyes and soften your dead heart and, and give you a vision of Jesus that is so captivating, so beautiful, so overwhelming that it drowns out all other loves and all other voices and, 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 and it demands your, your life and your soul and your all until you see him. May God grant it. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh God in heaven, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for Jesus, for his beauty, his glory. I thank you that Jesus is our reward. Oh God, I, I pray that Tomorrow when we roll out of bed and go back to the life that you've called us to live, I pray that we would consider what it's going to look like today if living is Christ. I pray that it would penetrate our relationships. It would, it would alter our attitudes. It would impact the way we go about our work, what we do with our schedule, how we deal with people, what we are thankful for. Oh God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see what you are doing in Jesus Christ in this world and what you would have us do because of Jesus Christ in this world. We thank you that he has destroyed death. But Lord, then lead us increasingly into that life the life of knowing Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.